invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 16 as we continue looking at God's Word and His story, how it intersects with our story in the book of Genesis. Faith is a little bit like a roller coaster sometimes. God didn't intend it or, or desire or design it to be this way, but we're wired for it to be that way. Ever since the fall of man, original sin, we have a propensity to sin. We have a propensity to disobey God and to doubt God and to question God and to attempt to do things on our own terms and in our own ways. And sometimes we're on a spiritual high or a summer camp high that puts us at the top of the crest of that track, displaying complete and total trust in the God of the Bible, but often it's not long before we plummet to the trough of that same track and we begin to question and doubt and wonder and drift in a display of complete and total trust in the God of Scriptures. And I'm convinced that everyone that has been a Christian for very long can identify with the idea of roller coaster faith. And this is not something that we just experience today. In fact, that great father of our faith, Abram, experienced this type of faith as well. And we'll see an example of it in Genesis chapter 16 this morning. But we've already seen his faith waver. We've seen him at the top and we've seen him plummet to the depths. In fact, last week in the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram is commended for his great faith. The famous verse, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, reads, Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believe the promises of God, though the promises, the fulfillment of those promises in his own life seemed to be delayed. And now, in the very next chapter, Abram is acting as if he once again doubts the fulfillment of those very promises, doubts if this God that has called him and made promises to him and called him to follow him, can deliver on his own promises. But even so, we learn through this chapter what what exemplary faith in God looks like. And we don't learn it from our father in the faith, Abram. We learn it from a young, foreign slave girl who experiences a great hardship. A young woman named Hagar spends time in the desert. And through conversation with a messenger from the Lord, an angel from the Lord... We learn what exemplary faith in God looks like. And we learn that the character of God calls believers to walk by faith as they wait for the miraculous fulfillment of His promises. The character of God, who God is, calls believers, people of faith, to walk by faith as they wait for the miraculous fulfillment of His promises. And this is not something that was just true in that day. This is not a truth that only applies to Abram's life. This is a truth that applies to our lives as believers in the God of Scripture today. For we live in what many Bible scholars have described as the already, not yet. Jesus has already come and He has already conquered sin and Satan and the grave. He's already paid the price, the penalty for our sin, allowing us through faith, by God's grace, to be reconciled to God, to be made right to God, to to live in intimate communion and fellowship with our Creator. But we 
We still live in a a sin-filled, disease-stricken world, and we still await the fulfillment of those promises. We still await for the return. Jesus has not yet come again and taken us to be with Him in His eternal kingdom where there's no more grieving, no more sorrow, no more hardship. And we wait for that day. We know what it's like to experience the joy of knowing God through Christ, but we can only imagine the great joy that we will experience as we're forever in the unhindered presence of our maker. And in the meantime, we're called to wait. We're called to practice faith. We're called to exercise faith in the God of scriptures, to walk by faith as we wait on the miraculous fulfillment of what he has promised us would take place. I want to invite you to join me in Genesis chapter 16 as we enter into this story, this dramatic story that has truths for our own lives as believers in the God of Scripture. Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. We read there, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my wife, or sleep, excuse me, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, took, Sarah his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands. Abram said, do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. There's a lot in this story. A lot that we could unpack. and A dramatic story that has great truths and implications for our lives as believers today. And we're going to run through the story rather quickly. And one of the first truths that I think we could take from this story is that human attempts to fulfill God's plans without God produce problems. Human attempts to fulfill God's plans without God produce problems. Now, that seems obvious enough. We would say, of course, you can't, can't fulfill God's plans without God himself. But that is exactly what appears to be taken here, taking place here in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 16. God has made a great promise. He's called Abram and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a land for your descendants. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth, numerous as the stars in the sky. Now Abram and Sarai have been waiting on God to deliver on these promises. They've been waiting for quite some time, and God's promises have not yet been been fulfilled in, in their own lives. To sort of try to get a picture of what What they may have been feeling, and this is certainly a stretch, but I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a teenager again. Of course, if you're a teenager, you don't have to imagine you are there. A number of our teenagers are not with us this morning. They're on a ski trip in West Virginia. But imagine for a moment that you are a teenager again, and you're, say, 15 or so, and your parents have come to you, and they've told you that they want to buy you a car. 
that they're going to they're going to get your first car for you. And so you're thrilled. You're, you cannot wait to see the car that they give you because you recognize that cars are expensive. You're not a snobby teenager. You're you're going to take whatever they give you. You're not going to make certain demands on year, make, and model because you know they're rather costly. Isn't that right, parents? And so you're waiting and you're looking forward to the day of your 16th birthday. You cannot wait to wake up and see whatever car they give you in your parents' driveway. And so you wake up on your 16th birthday and you look outside and you're excited and you look and there's no car there. You're shocked. In fact, weeks go by and there's still no car. Weeks turn into months and still no car. 17th birthday rolls around, still no car. And you begin to think, have have my mom and dad forgot what they promised me? Or perhaps they ran into difficult times, hard times, and you don't want to bring that up. So you begin setting a little money aside yourself. Again, saving a little bit here and there when you can. Because when you have enough money, you're going to go out and you're going to buy your own car. The cheapest car that... That you can find. But what you don't know is that all along, your parents have been putting a little money here and there aside. They're planning on surprising you on your 18th birthday with a car that is far nicer than anything that you could ever buy for yourself. And your parents never lied to you. In fact, they've been faithful to you the entire time. Your concept of time and the fulfillment of A promise made to you is just far different than what they were thinking. That feeling of waiting may begin to get at the picture of what Abram and Sarai were experiencing. Except multiply that times four or five. Because it was not two years or three years. It was ten years. It had been ten years since God had made this promise to them. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's not happening. So Sarai devises her own plan, comes up with her own strategy to ensure that she has a child, to ensure that there is a descendant who is an heir, never mind that God has already promised that, that they would have a child. A child would come from them. She tells Abram to take her servant, Hagar. Let her become your wife. I can have children through her. This sounds really shocking to us, very strange to us. We cannot imagine uh, a wife saying to a husband, hey, take another woman, make her your wife, and I'll have kids through her. That's just totally foreign to us. In fact, we we see marriages ending in heartache all the time when husbands and wives are doing something that only is to take place between a husband and a wife. You have to remember that in that day, the importance and necessity in that culture of having children was, was so central to the culture. In fact, remember that a couple generations later, Jacob who took on Rachel and Leah, two sisters, as his wives. Then Rachel and Leah began to compete with one another, seeing who could produce the most children for Jacob, trying to earn his love. So much so that each of them then gave him their own servant, so that they might have more children through their servant and become more loved by Jacob. As we read stories like this, we might wonder, we can't help but wonder, if we're in some ancient episode of that crazy show on television, Sister Wives, multiple spouses going on here. And we read over and over in the Old Testament of people of faith with 
with multiple wives. And it's important for us to know, although we can't jump into this this morning, that polygamy is, is not the intention of God. It's not the design of God. It's, it's never looked on as a positive thing in Scripture. In fact, very often where multiple spouses are, are found in stories in Scripture, there's tension, issues, difficulties that result from it. But all that to say... What's taking place here in this little scheme that Hagar or that Sarah has, has thought up that involves Hagar would not have been nearly as shocking in that day and in that culture, if at all, as it is in our day. The important thing for us to know is that in all of this planning and all of this scheming and all of this devising, there's no mention of God other than blaming God for not allowing her to conceive. There's no consultation with God. There's no meeting with God. There's no time of prayer seeking the Lord's direction. Lord, we're waiting. This is not happening. What are we supposed to do? What do you have for us? Rather, it's acting on their own. It becomes all about Sarai who blames God and and who gives her servant to Abram so that she might have a Descendant through her servant. And then with Abram's concession, it becomes all about Abram as well. Ignoring God. God is no longer the center of their plans. No longer the center of their activities. But they're acting on their own. And the truth for us is that human efforts that revolve around self are inconsistent with God's plans. Human efforts that revolve around self, that revolve around us. Revolve around me and I and what I want and what I think that ignore God are inconsistent with God's plans. And before we become too quick to judge them and to point the finger at them and say, I can't believe this couple been called by God would act in such a way. We need to ask ourselves, what are the things in our own lives? What are the difficulties? What are the struggles? What are the tensions? What are the challenges that cause us often to doubt God? fail to exercise complete and total trust in Him and to take matters into our own hands and to begin to act on our own terms without consulting God, without seeking God. For example, that new job opportunity that pays 20000 more dollars a year may not be God's desire for your life, even though it would give you more opportunity to to serve Him and to give back to Him. Or maybe, even though God has given you a heart for sharing the gospel, evangelizing and sharing the truth of God's Word with other people, God's desire may not be, His call in your life may not be for you to pack up and leave everything here and go to a faraway land where few people know the truth and immerse your life and begin to build relationships and share His truth there. Maybe God's will for your life is to stay put right where you are and to serve Him faithfully and to share His truth openly with your neighbors and with your co-workers and with your family and with your friends. The point is we won't know if we don't ask Him. We don't know if we don't consult Him. We don't know if we don't offer up the current circumstances and challenges and questions in our own lives to Him. And to drive this a little further home, even though it's a, a family tradition to purchase season tickets to your favorite college football team's home games every year. Perhaps this year God is leading you to do something different, something else, something greater with that that same expense. I know that's sacred territory and I'm not, not 
belittling football. I love football. But the point is, let's not allow our dreams and our aspirations, our wishes, even good desires to become more important than God's plans and His purposes and His desires for us. We'll never know if we don't consult Him. We'll never know if we don't seek Him. And because they had failed, because Abram and Sarah had failed to seek the Lord, to get His direction, acted on their own, ignoring the Word and the way of God, they found themselves in a mess. And this is because ignoring God's Word and His way creates a mess. For the people of God, ignoring God's Word and ignoring His way creates a mess. Well, Sarah was advanced in age, beyond the normal childbearing and raising years. God was not concerned with that. God wasn't worried that his plans wouldn't unfold as he intended, simply because this was not the norm. God was going to provide, he was going to deliver on his promises, and he was going to do so in a miraculous way that only he could get the glory for. But on a human level and initial standpoint, The plan worked. Hagar conceived. The child was born, but it created a mess. She ran away from home because she was being mistreated by her mistress, mistreated by Sarah, fled toward her homeland of Egypt. We learn in the rest of the story what, what proper faith Faithful prayer looks like as we face challenges in this world, but we don't learn it from that great hero of the faith, Abraham. We don't learn it here from him. We learn it from a young foreign slave girl who was on a path to becoming a single mother. So let's look at the rest of the story in Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. And you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son. and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So here we have the rest of the story, of this part of the story, where Hagar flees for her own sanity, perhaps for her own comfort, for her own well-being. The angel of the Lord shows up to her and asks her, Hey, where'd you come from? Where are you going? As if the Lord needed to ask such a question. But through that question, then, Tells, commands Hagar to return home, to return back to Sarai, to submit to Sarai. Initially saying, my plans are not finished for you, Hagar. This is not the end of things. In fact, you 
have conceived and you're going to bear a son and you're going to name him Ishmael. For Ishmael means God hears. God has heard you in your misery. You're going to have numerous descendants. So Hagar responds. She recognizes that the Lord has heard her cry, that the Lord sees her. Names the Lord in verse 13. You are the God who sees me. Now though, though Hagar's faith is not explicitly mentioned here, the conversation between this messenger from the Lord and Hagar implies for us that, that Hagar had been crying out to the Lord in her misery, that Hagar had been seeking the Lord and gives us a picture of the right practice in difficulty, the right practice for believers in times of stress. And it's this, that God expects His people to exercise patient hope and faithful prayer as they wait on His promises. God expects His people to exercise patient hope and faithful prayer as they wait on His promises. At this point in the story, Hagar is desperate. She is lonely. She is hurting. She is broken. We know so because she's just left a rich and wealthy family whom God clearly had a hand upon. Turned that away, gone in a different direction on her own. She is afflicted. Yet she's exercising faith in the Lord. And the Lord heard her cry, commanded her, told her, You're going to have a son, name him Ishmael. For Ishmael means the Lord hears, and the Lord has heard you in your misery. And the truth for us is that God hears the cry of his people. God hears the cry of his people. The same God that heard Hagar in her distress. The same God that heard Hagar in her misery hears us as his people when we cry out to him, when we call on him. The God who created us in his image, the God who called us to walk by faith in him is the God who hears us. Elsewhere, we're told in Scripture, in the New Testament book of Philippians, that we're not to be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we're to present our request to God. The implied truth is we're supposed to present every request in every situation to God, then that God who we're praying to hears our prayers. He knows our needs. He hears us when we call on Him, and He also sees our needs. God sees the need of His people. God hears the cry of His people, and He sees the need of His people. Hagar recognized this when she responded by saying, This is the Lord who sees me. Named her son Ishmael, returned Home with Abram and Sarah. Can you imagine how ironic is it that this child and the naming of this child and returning home to Abram and Sarah would be a constant reminder of what they're to do in difficult times, in uncertain times, in times of doubt and times of questioning, in times of wondering what is the right decision, what is the right path. You'd be reminded through the name of this child, born of a slave girl, they're to lift up the prayers to the one who hears them in their need, hears them in their affliction. A better way forward and an important reminder of what true faith in God looks like because the tension remained unresolved. Sarah, still no child. In fact, it'd be another 14 years before she would conceive and have the child. Relationship was strained between her and Hagar from this point forward. 
Folks, God hears our cries. He sees our needs. And He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who is good. A God who is mighty. And who He is, His character, calls us to walk by faith in Him as we wait on the fulfillment of His promises. As we draw this to a close and draw the truths of this passage to a close, I want to give us several beginning points, starting points for applying the truth found in Genesis chapter 16 in the context of all of God's word to our lives. For we have not properly and fully digested God's word here until we begin to apply it to our own lives and live it out in our own world. Firstly, let's repent of me-centered Christianity. Repent of me-centered Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, here Abram and Sarai were people of God who had been called by God, responded with faith in God, yet at a crucial moment in their lives, their faith in God became more about them and the fulfillment of their plans than it did God's plans. And I wonder how often that is true of us. Even in the small things, any time gathering the body of Christ, to worship the Lord. Anytime church becomes more about us and our comforts and our satisfactions and our fulfillments rather than God and His glory, then we've entered into a me-centered Christianity. In fact, even good things, Bible study, spiritual disciplines, whenever they become more about our own pride than growing in our walk with the Lord and pleasing the Lord in that way, then we've entered into a me-centered Christianity. Even our acts of service, even our acts of ministry, if they're more about our own fulfillment than advancing the gospel and glorifying the God who created us and called us and redeemed us, then we've entered into a me-centered Christianity. Whenever that is a place, let's, let's repent of that. Let's confess it before God. Turn away from that sort of behavior and embrace a faith, a true faith that is for God and His glory. Secondly, Let's surrender our plans for God's plans. Surrender your plans for God's plans. Following Christ is not really about us. It's about Him and His glory. So as we think about the truths of this passage, and God's plans, not only for Abram and Sarah, but God's plans for us as His people, we have to invite Him to show us what does that look like for us day by day as we walk with Him. Laying our own ambitions and dreams and desires aside and laying them at the feet of King Jesus and saying, Jesus, whatever you have for me, show me. I desire to be faithful as I walk with you. Repent of me-centered Christianity. Surrender your plans for God's plans. And thirdly, establish consistent habits that foster faith in God. Establish consistent habits that foster faith in God. Because just like this ancient couple, we face difficulties in this life. We face struggles. We face the possibility of terminal illness. We face the loss of loved ones. We face unfair termination. We face hardships, relational hardships, divorce, separation, guilt, bankruptcy, abuse. We could go on and on. When we face these challenges that we will indeed face in this world, If we are walking by faith in God in the good times, then we will be much more likely to walk by faith in God during the difficult times. Difficult times will come, and when they come, we are invited as God's people to pray to Him. Pray in distress. 
pray in distress. First reaction when affliction and challenge and hardship comes our way should not be to try to fix things ourselves. But that's in our nature. That's who most of us are. We want to fix the situation. We want to make things right. But the truth is, often we can't make things right. We can't fix things. But there is one, the author of life, the one who rules and reigns, the great I am, the good shepherd. He specializes in fixing our mistakes. In fixing difficult circumstances, so much so that he came on a rescue mission to this earth in order ultimately to lay his life down for us that we might have a way to be forgiven, to be restored, to be reconciled, to be made right with him. Let's pray to that one in distress. And fifth and finally, let's seek comfort from God's presence in difficult times. Seek comfort from God's presence during difficult times because He is the God who hears your cry. He's the God who sees your need. He's the God whose presence is with His people. And He is a great source of comfort to us. I don't know perhaps what you're facing this morning. I don't know what difficulties or circumstances or challenges are present in your own life. No doubt in a room like this, a room filled with broken, hurting people that are good at putting up a facade on Sunday morning so we can do this church thing again. But the truth is, according to God's word, is that we don't have to put up a facade before our maker because we have a God who loves us, who has created us, who has called us, who hears us, who sees our need and invites us into intimate fellowship with him. So let's be vulnerable with God today and always. Let's cry out to God, expressing our troubles, our hardships, good times, bad times before our maker. For he is a God who loves us, is compassionate toward us, merciful to us, sees us, hears us. And because that is who he is, let's walk by faith in him as we wait for the miraculous fulfillment of his promises, some that have already come about, some that are taking place now, and some that are yet to take place. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to to worship you, Lord, openly with your people. Unashamedly raise our voices in praise of you. Lord, we thank you that, that you're with us. We thank you that your presence is always with us, that you guide us by your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide us as we seek to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. We invite you to...